Want a smoother contour and more youthful-looking cheeks? Rediscover a younger-looking you by adding volume to the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC, part of the number one selling collection of dermal fillers, based on January 2022 provider survey data. With help from Juvederm Voluma XC and a licensed specialist, you can achieve a more youthful cheek look completely customized for your goals. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. And welcome to the Men's Journal Everyday Warrior podcast with your host, Mike Sorelli. That's me. And I am joined by Glenn Cowan today, who's a good, good friend. Um, no, he's not famous yet is the, uh, the key word, but he tries to stay under the radar. Try to, try to f- remain quiet, professional as best we've been taught, but it's, uh, we'll see how that goes. Well, you're, you're failing on both fronts if that's uh, quiet and professional. Yeah, I failed on the professional there. part. Okay. <laughs> well, no, Glenn is a good, good buddy. I'm sure we'll get into how we met. Uh, he is Canadian, like Annika. You know Annika Newell as well. You're who? Annika Newell. Yep. Yep. Yeah, we've crossed paths. Okay. So Glenn was Canadian tier one, a tier one operator. Can I? Yeah, you can. I think think we're good. I'm, I'm, I'm far enough removed, I think, and doing my best to represent the community in a positive light. So, yeah. And and that's the same thing I try to do for my respective community. But within Canada, they have a force known as Joint Task Force 2, also known as JTF2 for short. It is their version of American Tier 1 forces, uh, which, uh, you know, Delta Force and, and so on. And they are just as good, just as heroic, cut from the same cloth. I met them while serving uh, in the military myself, and then Glenn, Glenn and I met through mutual friends. But um, Glenn, let's dive in before we talk about your time in the military, and then especially you've crossed a domain. You're highly su- successful in one of the most elite forces in the, in the world, and you're still crushing it now in the business world. Having stood up what I like to describe as Canada's largest defense fund to date, is that accurate? Yeah, we have uh, recently launched a venture capital fund uh, that is Canada's first national security and critical infrastructure fund. And, and I use a lot of the parallels and analogies and the way that we would have approached a special operation in the way that I look at companies and invest and fundraise and, and really try to uh, deploy and build companies, technologies, and capabilities that actually help our collective national defense and and critical infrastructure security. So it's really rewarding because it's empowered me with another sense of mission where in in many ways, I feel that as a civilian outside of the military, uh, we've had some successes where we're actually contributing to the collective national security of the United States and Canada in a way that I wasn't able to do while I was in service with a unit like you, you described. So I'm going to assume in QTEL, 
was sort of the model you wanted to replicate for Canada? Yeah. I mean, if, if for those listening, can you, can yeah, you explain for, what for sure. So yeah, as we were fundraising, uh, we would kind of describe ourselves as the InQtel of Canada, a little bit of a different business model. Um, one of my co-GPs uh, has a very close relationship with InQtel. I was at a conference last week, uh, you know, where we had great interactions with their, with their senior management. They're actually in San Diego right now hosting their own conference where my business partner uh, is attending as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, you know, they have a singular limited partner in the, in the government agencies that they support. Um, our business model is a little bit different, but our focus and our thesis is aligned. And I think we're going to be doing some, some interesting things, hopefully in the future with uh, investors like InQtel and many others south of the border here in the U.S. that have just been amazing as we've uh, really built on an American network as well. Let's, let's dive into where you grew up um, leading up to, to, to the time you joined the military. And then naturally, I want to dive into your time with JTF2 and what you learned as a leader leading some of the most elite forces in the, uh, in the world. Yeah, for sure. I grew up uh, northeast of Toronto in a town called Markham, kind of typical suburban town to a big city. Uh, very happy, sort of upper middle class family. Uh, my parents are awesome. Um, you know, my mom, mother of three boys. I have two older brothers. Uh, my dad was a business uh, mentor and inspiration for me on the business side. I come from a long line of family business enterprise. There's some cool stories behind some of the, the businesses that my family's kind of brought kind of forward. Uh, my mom was the glue and the rock that kept our, fam- our kind of family on even keel. Um, now, my, you know, my oldest brother, I love him to death. He's amazing. He's a one-eyed uh, criminal defense lawyer turned stand-up comedian. Uh, my other brother is a, a surfer on a beach in Nosara, Costa Rica. And so, you know, the, the running joke in my family growing up was, uh, he's a very creative guy, my middle brother. Um, you know, he's, he's a big ideas thinker. Some of the projects that you and I are talking about right now, I've bounced some ideas off him on how to kind of curate and innovate and sort of think really big. And I've taken a lot of inspiration from him. But the running joke in my family was, I was going to do something stupid. My oldest brother would defend me and get me out of trouble. And it would be a good enough story that my middle brother would make a movie about it. And, and uh, kind of two out of three of those have kind of come true. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of the way we grew up. So typical household, three brothers beating the living crap out of each other? Yeah, youngest of three. Uh, there was a point in time when my parents said, you better be careful. Glenn's going to get bigger than you sometime. Uh, and that did happen. Um, but we, you know, we had the regular banter and we'd, we'd uh, our summers uh, at our cottage uh, up at the lake uh, would always result in uh, an annual trip to the hospital with a relatively catastrophic injury. Um, you know, uh, whether that was, uh, you know, a fight where my middle brother grabbed the, the Dristan nasal spray bottle and just in the last ditch effort before death, jammed it into my oldest brother's good eye and squeezed the entire sort of bottle of, of nasal spray, uh, rendering him completely blind um, to, you know, fish hooks into every part of the body. Uh, literally and figuratively, um, you name it. We we had those types of injuries that that resulted in the wait, 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 back up. <laughs> One brother took the eye of another brother. Well, it's a crazy story. My 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 oldest brother and Scott, I love you, buddy. So I'm going to throw you under the bus here. Um, he was born uh, blinded in one eye, uh, but his eye kind of functioned. But he he could never see anything coming from the one angle, like. 
uh, and he would he would tackle us and pin us down and put all his weight on our biceps and then clear his throat and spit it into our mouth. And that was kind of that was kind of the way he would get his his revenge. And so as he would like hang like the loogie yeah. out, my middle brother in a last ditch effort of like salvation grabbed like, you know, like like a name, like a Afrin bottle. We call it Dristan or yep. whatever. And just like jammed it and it went right into his good eye and he let go of the whole bottle. So we had to call poison control and we didn't have an eye flush. So, you know, mom races into the hospital. And this was like a typical event at the, you know, we had one good one a year while we were in the summer at the cottage. And that, that was one of them. I, you know, I, I always considered it like preparation for special operations assessment and selection because I was the youngest. Being the youngest of brothers is a is good selection for sure. I, my brother beat the living. My, I will say my brother and his friends. Yeah, beat the living crap. It was not all totally undeserved. Yeah, I had quite a little mouth when I was a little. Kid. I mean, but he pushed me off the roof of one of our structures onto a wood pile. Oh yeah, and I remember just messed me up. And then he tried to, to hush me up about it in pain. Yeah. We, we, we would do the same, you know, loosen the lug nut on the front wheel of a BMX bike as he goes off a jump and the wheel comes off mid-jump <laughs> and took out all his front teeth. You know, that, that was pretty normal. Yeah. I, I think in today's day and age, parents would get called by, I don't know in Canada if you guys have child protective services, but no, no, it seems like you, you can't do that stuff anymore. I'm, I'm hypersensitive to it. Now when my, I have two girls and when they fight, I'm like all super sensitive. I'm like, are they okay? I'm like, yeah, they're fine. Like, think about what we did as a kid. I think they're just fine. At what point did you make the decision to go into the Canadian military? This is a this is an easy question. Um, and I think, like you, and we've I've been on a couple of podcasts with Mike uh, and a bunch of other Tier One guys, you know, from SEAL Team Six and Delta and the STS and that community. And 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 the common theme, I think, there's something just in our DNA. Uh, I think there's a calling that we know very early that not only do we want to be in the military, but we want to be a special operator in the military. And I would, I would almost partition those two out because there is something unique, I think, in the DNA of guys and girls like us that want to do this kind of stuff. Uh, for me, uh, when I, I think I was 15, I went to France and I did a Normandy battlefield tour. And uh, I walked Juneau Beach where the Canadians stormed Normandy. Uh, I was so moved in the, the American military cemetery in Omaha. We were talking about this the other day. And, and I, I kind of promised myself, one, I'm going to do that. And if anything like this ever happens again, I want to be a part of it. And it was just a calling, and I just knew. Uh, I went to university uh, in Montreal. I went to a university called McGill, which is a... I don't know how I got in there, but I got into McGill. It's a very good school. Uh, and I joined a reserve unit called the Black Watch, which is a Scottish Highlands uh, part-time uh, reserve unit to help put myself through school. And, and very early on in there, I knew I, I needed to go to, to special operations. Um, and, so, and, and, and I found myself... Is the Black Watch infantry? What, I mean, it's what a, it's a, a light infantry unit, yeah. Light infantry. Light infantry. But it's part-time, a huge culture, uh, Scottish Highland traditions, and... Um, you know, post 9-11, I'd done a component transfer to the regular force, and I was in the right time and place, and I was sent to a full-time light infantry battalion in the Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry. That was the NATO High Readiness Force for Canada. Immediately after 9-11, we were attached to the first of the 187 Brigade Combat Team, yep. 101st Rockassans, and we were in Afghanistan by January 2002. 
as a conventional platoon commander, uh, as green behind the ears as you can get. Um, did, did you go in as an officer, even I, during college? Immediate, yeah, I, I, I did, and to this day, I, I, I keep kind of kicking myself for being an officer. <laughs> You know, uh, anyway, I, I mean, I say that half joking, half tongue in cheek, but there's some some merit to it. So the Black Watch, do you guys wear dresses? Full, full kilts. Kilts, motherfucker. Dresses. Kilts, motherfucker. Okay. Bagpiped into battle, over the top, First World War, kilts. I think in America we call them dresses, but... Don't, don't fight a guy in a kilt. There's a lesson to you. There's, there's, the there's a good lesson. Go. So at what point... And I know, you know, you mentioned we did a podcast together. That was, uh, that was one of the best podcasts I've, I've ever done. That was a great experience. Was, there will never be another podcast like that. And for the, for the audience, we'll, we'll drop the link. It was a, a select uh, season called Truth Plus Tribe in partnership with a great company, Truth Plus Media, owned by uh, a gentleman named uh, Brett Goldberg. And uh, I'm forgetting the famous coach. He was the coach of the... Uh, Denver Nuggets. Coach Carl, thank you in the audience. Uh, George Carl. Um, but we had yourself representing Canada. Yep. Brent Tucker. Brent, Brent uh, Tucker. A, a tier one. A tier one. Oh, um, I didn't say that. Sorry. Army soldier. Uh, tier one army have? soldier. Uh, My bad. Rich Devaney. Rich Devaney. Uh, maybe tier one sol- soldier. And me. Oh, uh, Jason uh, Magnevis? Was he no, no, no. Uh, Eric. Uh, curly hair, wore a pink shirt. We slagged him for it. Oh, Air Force Tier 1. And then I think, we do we have Jason Magnevis? No. Nope. J-Max, no? No. Okay. You. Well, uh, that was basically for the 9-11 20th anniversary, right after the withdrawal of Afghanistan. And, yeah. and we it was two parts. Go listen to it. It was uh, the reflections of soldiers that fought pretty much across the 20-year war, uh, what they had learned, their thoughts. It was the 10th anniversary of extortion as well. It was the 10th anniversary of extortion 17. Yeah. You had talked about uh, one of the soldiers lost during Operation Anaconda, I think that's correct, from Canada that that still impacts you to this day, and and you said drove you to step to the next level. Yeah, he was an inspirational uh, junior non-commissioned leader. His name was Mark Leger. He was not killed on Op Anaconda. He was killed by friendly fire uh, on a training accident where a U.S. F-16 mistook our forces for enemy and engaged with, I think, a 500-pound GBU. Um, Four of our guys were killed. uh, But Mark, uh, I didn't know him well. Uh, He wasn't in my company. um, But he had a really profound impact on me as a very junior platoon commander, which is a pretty daunting for any young, for NCOs that slag officers, if you flip the script a little bit, you don't know how nervous a new guy coming into an infantry battalion is. Like, it can be pretty daunting to try and stand up in front of a group of seasoned, hardened NCOs and present yourself with any kind of credibility um, and kind of fake it till you make it. And and Mark was uh, just a really compassionate, good guy. And, and um, there was just a few times and a few instances where he said some really nice things to me, and he didn't have to, and it stuck with me. And the night he was killed, uh, it was actually my range that night. So we were supposed to go out. Uh, His company had got a warning order for a mission, and they had to go out and zero their guns. So, you know, uh, their company, EXO, came across and said, hey, I got to take your range. And we kind of slagged and said, yeah, you know, 
This is bullshit. We're losing our range to you guys. You know, a little like intercompany sort of dynamics. And so I went to the gym and I was just working out and I I was in there uh, and he was in there. And uh, I think the last thing I said to him was, thanks for stealing our range. Have a good shoot. You asshole. And, and so probably yeah. something like that. And and I think there might have been a fist bump or something. That was the last I, last time we ever had an engagement. And like I said, I didn't know him well, um, but an, uh, just an unbelievable like he he was uh, inspiring to me in the sense that you could ha- he was a big dude, strong dude, an incredibly respected leader, uh, but had compassion, and and you know that like he could fuck you up, but always had something compassionate and nice to say like he was a good man and and i just try to draw a little bit of inspiration from that um i wish i knew him better because he was he's the kind of person i would have wanted to know better you know there's a few things i want to dissect in in accordance with the, the podcast and it's sort of our, our pillars and our themes you you've served with some guys that are just lethal some of the most lethal people on this planet in, in Devin. Dev, yeah. Devin, Dev? Dev's pretty lethal. Yeah. I, in, in, you got to have we'll, Devin on this podcast. We'll he'll he'll blow and, your mind. Yeah. We'll, and we'll, we'll talk about here, him here in a little bit. But, you know, I, I, at risk of taking a lot of criticism, you know, there's a lot of soft guys out there that are in the movies that – compared to the tier one guys, didn't do a whole lot. They served their country, and I'm not trying to degrade anyone's service, but they built this reputation, often like a big fish in a small pond, like the West Coast SEAL teams, where you know they never ventured out to take it to the next level. And at the next level, I truly, I served in the West Coast SEAL teams, I love my time over there, I love the guys. But when I got to the tier one, I truly understand what it meant to be the most lethal warrior, not myself, but watching the guys that were and you just said Mark could fuck anyone up. Well, Mark was a, he was a fighter, but he, he was. Now it, he, this is when I was in a conventional infantry I battalion. I know. Yeah, yeah. And, and even there, and there's there's plenty of them. Those dudes fought for a reason. They had a great oh, yeah. amount of restraint. And the most lethal dudes I knew never told anyone. And they were empathetic. They were kind. They were respectful. And what was most admirable. And I'm, I'm thinking of so many guys right now where I, walk, I watched them walk out of a bar where they knew it was going to be a bad situation. Not for them, for the other guy yep. opening their mouths. Yeah. And they just left. They left. Are we going to the bar fight? I, 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 I was in very few <laughs> bar fights. Um, in fact, my, I think my last scrap was outside this bar. Uh, and I woke up on the sidewalk. Uh, and that was my realization that, uh, I, I, that my time was done. I had a realization a couple of years ago, too, where I got jumped. I was with a couple of guys... We got jumped and I was put in the hospital and I was not in a good place mentally and, and whatnot. And it was, a, it was a wake up. The other thing you said is about being a brand new officer standing in front of a bunch of seasoned yeah. guys. And seasoned maybe you had three years in the military and they're at like 10 or 7. Or I, For those listening, I don't care what your rank is. I don't care if you went to college and all of a sudden come in as a general manager. You cannot rush credibility. Only action in time. And what I mean by action is consistency and following through on what you say you're going to do. That is the only way to build credibility in the eyes of, of your people. Yeah. I always was, I was never as old as my senior enlisted advisor, 
never had as many deployments as my guys had. And I, I think it's natural for everyone wants to rush credibility and trust. They want to rush those things, but they're the, the only true and tried way of doing it is just perform on a daily basis and eventually it'll come. Yeah, I, absolutely. And, and, it's, and it's, the, it's the proverbial chicken and egg because you, you can't get the credibility until you're given the opportunity. But often as a young officer or a new officer, whether it's in a conventional platoon, you're showing up to a light infantry battalion or in a tier one unit, you just haven't been given the opportunity. So you need that time to cut your teeth. And, 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 and we all want to have the confidence and we have egos and, and like narcissistic tendencies and we're like invincible young men that just are fueled by testosterone and we want to fight, but we also want to like lead well and do the right thing. And I, I mean, it took me a long time to realize one of the important lessons I learned as a troop commander and that is you can't please everybody. No. I would deploy, we would have four team leaders, really awesome sort of sergeant level team leaders running, running the fight. I mean, a troop commander has his role in the fight. Team leaders have their role in the fight. Uh, they're running the fight. And these are really opinionated alpha males with a lot of experience. And a lot of the time they don't get along. And they have different opinions about how you should approach something. But ultimately as the buck stops with you. So, you know, when push comes to shove, you, you're the one that says, hey, this is the direction we're going. And I tried too hard for too long to make sure everyone was kind of happy, as opposed to being like, your idea is terrible, we're going with his idea, it's better, you're not, let's go. And it took me a little while to kind of understand the fact that my decision making was going to leave 50% of the people kind of pissed off. And, and, and it, it was a really hard comfort to arrive at and with my own confidence to kind of hoist that aboard. And by the time I got to be a squadron commander, it was easy because I had that confidence and it took that many years to kind of build that many operations and deployments and interactions with different people's experience and learning from, you know, your, your, your non-commissioned warriors that are actually the ones who will hold you up and make you successful or not successful based on sort of how you're able to build this team. But it's their team. As an officer, we were always just kind of passing through. They held the fort. They had the integrity of holding teams together for years, and we were just kind of, we were just kind of renting the seat a little bit and passing through. And, and, and so it took me a little bit, it took me a while to understand that and then pivot my leadership style to sort of appreciate that and understand that. Um, and so I found myself starting to listen a whole lot more um, and, and realizing that you can't please everybody and then just be transparent and open about the context behind why you're making that decision. And it just comes down to, if you're going to make a decision that upsets someone, tell them the reason why you're doing it. Give them the out, give them the backstory, give them the backstop, give them the context. And, and nine times out of ten in my experience, uh, they might not have liked your decision, but they would at least have an understanding as to why we were going in that certain direction. Yeah. Oh, I, then, I, I failed as a troop commander so many times. Oh, everyone oh, does. There's, 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 it was humbling. There's no playbook, man. It was there's, humbling. There's no playbook, but, you, you know... As you dissect what it means to be a leader, not everyone's cut out to be a leader because all eyes are on you. They're second guessing every decision that you make. I mean, it is a brutal, brutal position. You, you have to become comfortable with 
almost being alone in a sense. I, in, in people have asked me, like deployed overseas, like, oh, you're surrounded by 40 of your brothers. I'm like, yeah, absolutely. Leadership a is a lonely position. But as a true lonely. commander, even though I'm surrounded by them, you do have to segregate yourself in certain aspects to not compromise your ability to make the hard decisions. Now, I, I like to say this, and I love your position. I, I, I talk about decisions of what's best and what's right. And let, yeah. let me break that down. So let's say it's, it is, well, Canada during the winter, it's snowing, it's negative 30 out. The best decision, the, good, the one that will make you popular with the guys is, hey guys, let's, let's cancel training, let's go to the bar, let's drink, and the guys will love you from that from a popularity standpoint. We don't drink in Canada. You, sure. <laughs> yeah. Sure, buddy. No, I know what you're saying. I know what you're saying. But the right one is, hey, we only have so many training evolutions before we go back overseas. Yeah. We may learn something during this training, which no one's going to be comfortable in negative 30. I don't care what gear you have, but we're going to go out, we're going to train hard, yep. and we're going to take it seriously. Yep. And guys will eventually respect you for that decision two weeks, one month. Six months down the line, and some, to your point, never will. But that's 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 a you or, or, or that's the, a them problem. The last training evolution of the night when everyone thinks you're done, and you're going to start packing it up, and then you say, "No, that wasn't good enough. Run it again." Or or really hard ones like we talked about yesterday. So we've been driving around Austin. Uh, we're, we're we're filming this from Austin, and I've been on a bird scooter for a week. It's been awesome. But Mike and I have been driving around a little bit, and um, you know we we talked about. Should we go out and help? Is that our job? Are we here to kill bad guys? Are we here to help save our coalition forces? You know, that discussion, that was a hard one. And that one, that one had some moral and ethical implications into like, what is our role here? Do we go out in the middle of the daytime because we hear on the radio that not too far from us, there's a contact and there's some conventional soldiers or another SF team getting brewed up? They've got QRF, they've, you know, is inserting yourself into that fight going to cause more conflict or um, more confusion? Is it going to, is it going to hurt your guys so that you can't go out that night and actually prosecute the task that you're asked to prosecute? And it, and it create, it, I know it created discussions amongst sort of me and my peers of like, we're here to kill these bad guys. Well, no, 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 we're here to kill all the bad guys and protect our guys. And it was just a very moral and ethical, and it was a very polarizing discussion sometimes. And I'm not going to say there's a right or wrong answer. There's not a right it's, or wrong the answer. The there's, not, there's not a right or wrong answer yeah. to it. Uh, and, and it was just, but again, one of those, like a leader getting thrust into making some pretty difficult dis- decisions that were morally and ethically really challenging to make because there's not really a right answer. There's kind of only a wrong answer. And it's like, which one of the wrong, which, which wrong, less wrong, which one is less wrong. Um, and anyway, it was, I found often some of the decisions that we were forced to make were exactly that. Which one is less wrong? Which one's going to suck less? Which one is the one you can sleep with or live with a little bit better than the alternative. Does that make sense? It does, man. In- I, I'm not going to lie. There were definitely decisions that were decisions by consensus or the, or the, the tribal council, which I, I'm, I'm fine with. Some decisions, you know, I'm, I'm willing to advocate that I don't need to own it. If all the guys think this is the right decision, it, if, if I was somewhat in agreement, I, I was willing to make that decision in accordance with, with what they thought. Uh, that, that, there's a line there where, you know, bro, when I'm, do you have to stand against the... No, no, I'm glad you brought this up yeah. because I've built my business around this exact lesson that I pulled out of conducting operations in Afghanistan. 
and decision making comes down to time and opportunity and 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 risk and understanding risk but really time and opportunity is where the the most important lesson that i've pulled into my business we would in our community we always wanted to involve everybody in the plan we wanted we wanted buy-in from the from the from the guys that were going to be doing the business and if we had time and opportunity we would spend 72 hours deliberately planning a very methodical mission we would give as much time to the guys that had to go into the rooms and do the business to build the plan. There were some times when something would spike right away and there was no time to plan and we had to say as a leader, this is the way we're doing it, shut up and get on the helicopter, yeah, get in the trucks, let's go. And I think when, when and I apply that to my businesses now, uh, time and opportunity. And again, in a non-war setting, we should, we should think that we have a lot of time and opportunity, but business is competitive, business is ruthless. The clock is ticking, things need to happen. Things always happen slower than you want. And so I have, I've really taken uh, the, the, the concept of, let's not rush to failure if we have time. Let's involve as many different stakeholders in the decision as we can. Let's go to committee, let's, let's take a vote. Let's do whatever we need to do to get the right plan but at the end of the day, if there's no time, there's no democracy. It's an authoritarian one decision maker. The buck stops with me. Let's go. So that goes to leadership styles. And, and there's not one leadership style. There's a time to be, let's say, an authoritarian where time is not a variable you have. There is time to be, in a sense, politician where you want to hear other, everyone's viewpoint because you have plenty of time, that variable. And and you've got the time to take in input for everyone and see what the best decision is for the organization, yeah. what the right decision is for the organization. Yeah, it's tough. It's tough. Well, especially within our line of work, sometimes you had months, if not weeks, to plan for certain operations time. Sometimes it was, we have them now. Let's go. You need to go, go get this guy. Which we're honestly, we used to joke and we'd call that Navy SEAL battle procedure. Like, Because we're that good. <laughs> yeah. No, it's like... Like, get in the truck, drive up, do it, and get out of there. Like, we would joke. It was pretty funny. Did you guys basically use us as, like, the model to be like? Yeah, you guys are amazing because SEALs are, like, like nothing, Keep going. nothing bad ever happens in a SEAL community. Keep going. You guys can do no wrong. You know, I'm liking this conversation. Yeah, yeah. Totally. Honestly, we did learn a lot from... Uh, U.S. Special Operations. There's a, uh, not to say that my community, like, I, there's, a, there's a drastic difference between Canada and the U.S. Like, we, we can... One's awesome and one's not. Yeah, and one wins gold medals at hockey and one doesn't, so we're good. Um, but no, there's a, there is a, not to say that we don't have a warrior ethos, but there is an, a, there is an aggression um, that, that I witnessed working alongside both tier one army guys and tier one Navy guys that, that, uh, I mean, we talked about it on the last podcast. Um, it kind of led in, in many ways to a little bit of an imposter syndrome, which, which I'd say comfortably, we were very good at what we did. Don't get me wrong. And I loved the community I came out of, but there was a, a, a desire to, to get in a scrap, um, that you guys are truly the masters of. When I go around the world and I see what's happening geopolitically right now, we got Ukraine, we got a rising threats in China, we got a lot of technology kind of coming to the forefront in the venture scene. We know, we know that, that, that we 
as a Western democratic society can position ourselves very well. And people start talking about the U.S. My, my response is uh, um, never back an American into a corner because you're going to come out swinging. And it's a little bit of a be careful what you wish for. And I have a perspective of being able to see, say that from a, a military side, a tier one soft side, a business side. Um, and it's, it's uh, you guys can be a ruthless adversary uh, and, it's, and, and an amazing ally to take an objective with. Like it's really, it's, it's uh, when, the, when, the, when the power of the American machine gets going, it's impressive. And I saw it the first time on Op Anaconda. We came in on the back end to do a little bit of a mop up on the tail end of Anaconda, it was called Harpoon. And it was the first time I saw the sheer shock and awe of the US Air Force. As, as the Northern Alliance was pushing Al-Qaeda into sort of the Tora Bora Pass, the bunker buster munitions that were dropping 24 seven around the clock was like, again, like not to quote W, but like shock and awe, man. Like, I think one of our guys was probably taking a shit on the hillside sometime and the overpressure from a concussion knocked him over into, knocked him back into his own, you know, business. And it was hilarious. We all laughed at him. But it was shock and awe. I mean, and that's the only way to describe it. It was probably two kilometers away that a, that a round impacted a target and we were getting knocked over like we were getting hit with earthquakes. It, it was truly phenomenal. And, and likewise, on some of the missions we did, we Winchestered AC-130 gunships all the time. And those were not Canadian gunships. And we're not on the radio with American Air Force personnel that come in and check in and just be like, hey, y'all, tell me what you need down there and we're going to make it happen. And it was just the most comforting, the most comforting voice we'd ever have on a radio. It was, it was truly, truly uh, awe-inspiring in, some, in many regards. There are critics of how much we spend discretionary funding on defense but I assure you there's a reason and those people are not complaining when we actually deploy it and put it into action. We're seeing it right now. We're absolutely seeing it right now. I've built a venture capital fund, not to capitalize on this because we've been saying it for many years. Um, war and defense spending is a big business, it's an ugly business, and it's a necess uh, necessary business. We have in Canada, as an example, probably the most left-leaning liberal government. It's a minority government. I'm not getting political, but they are spending well in excess that we have seen in the past of a conservative majority government because it, it's a necessity. And when, when we're not faced with some of the threats we're faced right now in the world, it can afford to become political. But when it becomes a necessity, it's a very, it's a very nonpartisan discussion. We need this. We need this kit. We need to outfit our men and women appropriately. We need to put the infrastructure in place. And, it, and it's actually uh, a really positive, nonpartisan view, which is completely counterculture, which is scary because it actually goes to show there's a serious existential threat right now that we've got to take pretty seriously. It, it, it's crazy that people will say that war is not a necessary thing. It's almost like saying evil will one day not exist on this earth. Evil will always exist. There will always be a need. We will always be at war with, with some form of evil somewhere in the world. Right now, you know, for the last 20 years, it was international terrorism, which still exists. Yep. And right now it's the aggression of Russia against the Ukraine. And I would add the third most significant and biggest threat is a rising China that is going to challenge the United States for glo global hegemony. Hege 
global dominance hedge on me. I can't remember. I don't, whatever. We got it. And, and we're gonna see. We're gonna see. Make no mistake. What's playing out in Ukraine and our responses as a Western democratic it's, society is a pregame for. If you don't think the Chinese are sitting back and watching that response in relation to what they might do in Taiwan, you're very naive. You're very naive. And, this is, and, and, and uh, it's a very scary discussion, um, and it's one that we have to take very seriously. And, and I've been involved, again, as a civilian, I've been behind more, probably more no foreign close hold discussions as a civvy than I was as a tier one squadron commander. What, what year did you come into the military? 98. Same year I came into the U.S. military. Yeah. It's funny because when in that era prior to 9-11, we were study, studying Russian armor. Yeah. We were preparing for the next, next war with Russia. Yeah. And it is amazingly, it is astonishing how bad they are. It is, I mean, we, for so long we thought the Russian military was so, so much more advanced and competent. It is, it, it's comedic. Is How it, bad they, they, they are. Is it that, or does it just show that one guy with a javelin missile can stop a 40-mile-long T-72, T-72 column? Because it's insane. And as I told you, we got a company that we're working with right now that literally has a Harry Potter invisibility cloak. And against a T-80 thermal sight, this, a, a javelin gunner or a dude with a 338 or a 50-cal rifle is invisible. And they will wreak havoc on an armored column. It's, it's mind-blowing. So is it that, or is it tactics have changed? It's not World War II tank-on-tank -tank warfare. Like, I, I don't know the right answer to that, but what's happening in Ukraine is giving us a little bit of a picture as to what the future of warfare looks like. There, there is a component that, hey, I would never wish my, my son or daughter go to war. I would never wish that on anyone's son or daughter. I know you and I didn't mind that. Um, and that's what we, we, in a sense, signed up for, and we were prepared for it, and we knew the outcomes, we knew the consequences. But there is something to say how good the U.S., the British, the Canadians, the Australians have gotten over the last 20 years, how, how good they have gotten at conflicts, of fighting these conflicts from not only the tactics to the logistics to the evolution in technology and, and, and equipment, I mean, we, we have a lot of corporate knowledge now that the Russians and Chinese just don't have. Yeah. They don't have the iterations. It comes down to iterations. So, 100% agree, but I will play devil's advocate to that, too. While we were doing that and getting really good, notwithstanding the Russians, but the Chinese weren't doing that. Do you know they were buying were, everything. Do you know what they were doing? Buying everything. In, in they, were, they were building the Thousand Talents program. They were penetrating every Fortune 500 company yeah. in the U.S., with, with insiders that are stealing intellectual property. And we know that to be true. They're not stupid. They are, they are moving towards economic warfare, intellectual property theft type warfare, cyber warfare, data privacy warfare. Future war is gonna play out very differently. And we've had, had a great discussion. I, I met, I met uh, for a quick bite to eat the other night, uh, a senior NCO from Army Tier 1 unit in Fort Bragg. Like, uh, and we had that discussion of like, were we really at war in the last 20 years? Or did we just, you know, deploy and conduct really high speed tier one type direct action targeting missions where we were not fighting a near peer adversary? And, and what we're seeing right now is fighting a near peer adversary is on a, a scale different. of war. Is, is a lot different, I'll give you that. And, and I don't wanna say that. that we weren't in combat and we weren't engaged in a conflict. But it just, it leads like, 
it, it's led me to kind of start thinking about like what is actually playing out now? What does the next conflict look like? And I think if we start drawing some of those lessons that we've learned out of Iraq and Afghanistan as trying to apply it to an armored column, we might want to start rethinking how we're doing it because it's a completely different beast. It's a completely different enemy. It's a completely different target set. I backstop that with the fact that we've got really incre incredible guys and girls who are really smart, put some cool stuff into their hands, and they're going to figure out how to win with it. And so that I'm, that I'm very confident in that, that, that what we put forward in the next fight is going to do just as well as some of our forces did kind of collectively over the last 20 years in the global war on terror. Well, we're going to take a mid-roll break here, but before we do, we ask a, a few key questions. First off, biggest regret of your life to date? I think I, I'm a, I've learned a lot in the past year, and um, transparency and honesty and integrity um, and learning, learning how to live in a post- Screw up. Sort of civilian way. It's just been a really interesting, but I think biggest regret of my life as a theme would be um, probably at times misrepresenting who I am or trying to uh, not call it as I see it as clearly and as honestly and as transparently as I probably should have. And there's many examples. So if we were to put them under a theme, that would, that would be it. Transparency, integrity, and honesty, and, and uh, defaulting to a fear-based sense of decision-making as opposed to making decisions from the heart. That's probably one of the most honest answers we've had. Everyone puts their best face forward, their best public image forward. Everyone has a lapse in integrity. Everyone has a lapse in honesty. That, that is the truth. That right there is the truth, but people that try to play the game of like, well, I'm, you know, I will never tell a lie. That's, to me, that, I'm like, that's bullshit. That is bullshit. I, I have learned this year that, uh, in the last, more than year, last few years, uh, fear is the opposite of love. You can't go wrong if you lead with love. That's a great one. And um, you literally, if you tell the truth and lead with love, you can't go wrong. There is no wrong answer. Uh, and I've really done a lot of self-reflection and evaluation on a lot of those things. And, and fear conjures up ego, selfishness, fear, anxiety, depression, um, and fear is the opposite of love. So lead with love, and you're probably going to Take your life, decisions, friendships, relationships to another level in the in the direction that is just good for everybody. Great answer again. Um, hardest decision that you've ever had to make. I worked for a commander, <laughs> and I use this line a lot, uh, and I kind of tongue in cheek, but um, in the decision to whether or not we had to prosecute a target and kill a guy, it was. It was a harder decision as to whether or not we were going to put onions on our cheeseburger. That's how clear the decision was. And I use that, I use that kind of uh, as a tongue-in-cheek uh, sort of answer when I think about this decision. Hardest decision I had to make? Um, uh, probably uh, putting myself in a position of significant vulnerability 
over uh, an issue of integrity. And I'll leave it at that. Love it. Love it. Okay, we're going to take about a three-minute break, and we will be right back with Glenn Cowan, former JTF2 operator and founder of One Nine, the largest defense fund in Canada. We are back with Glenn Cowan, former JTF2 operator. If you don't know what that is, it's in Canada. I don't think anyone cares. Um, I probably just upset our it, whole men's journal. It's a really good base. hockey team that does some special operations sometimes. For, for Canada. If there are any Canadians in the bar, I apologize up front. You guys are good to go. I just give Glenn... It's a healthy rivalry. It's, a, it's good. Well, it's good. I mean, so, in all, you know... The most bloody game of hockey that I've ever witnessed or seen or heard about was a ball hockey game between my community and a community at Fort Bragg. And it was the, probably the most bloody game of ball hockey I've ever seen. It was awesome. Who, who wins in the U.S.-Canada hockey? That's how closely I follow hockey. Uh, Canadian women's hockey is on the rise. I'm the proud hockey dad of two young girls that um, watching the rise of women's hockey uh, and, the, and the rivalry in sports that is taking place now between Canada women's hockey and American women's hockey is unbelievable. For anyone who's a sports fan, if you're not following that rivalry, it is probably one of the best ones. It is amazing hockey. It is ruthless. It is brutal. It is cutthroat. And it's going all the way down to 10 years old. These girls go into the rink. They've got their stuffies under their arm. They're wearing their little Uggs, their little track suits. They got their bunnies. And then they come out and they go on the ice and they kill each other. And then just they come, shoulder checks, just they, laying, they come laying back each other into out. The locker room. They paint whiskers. And then they get their bunnies and they go for a play date. It's the cutest thing I've ever seen. And when they're on the ice, you, I, I shit you not, you would think you're watching like Div 1 women's hockey. Uh, it's unbelievable level of competition. I'm so impressed by seeing young girls be empowered and literally get on the ice and leave it all out there. It are, is a really awesome... a lot of the awesome Canadian universities, do they now have women's hockey teams where they're given scholarships? Canadian women's hockey in the universities is a great caliber of hockey. The reality of, again, the Canadian-American dynamic to which uh, the, the, the goal, if you want to say goal, or the highest level that our girls can compete at outside of Olympic national team level would be to be uh, drafted or get, given a scholarship to a Div 1 American school. Uh, and that is kind of where these girls, even at 10 and 12, are starting to be recruited for, uh, and, and groomed into some of these roles. It's, 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 it's something else. And, and it's the mom show. Uh, men are not allowed in the locker rooms, but, which I think is amazing. Even from sort of seven years old and up, dads aren't allowed in. So it's the mom show, and it's the den moms that, that run, run the hockey for these girls, and, and they put so much into it, and it's really, it's really incredible to see. I, I, dude, anyway, I have no sorry, doubt. Sorry, that's my hockey plug. That, no, no, I have no doubt. Having worked out with Annika, I was in pain for a week and a half. Having worked out with Tim Kennedy, it was like that good soreness, like the delayed onset yeah. soreness, whatever it's called, DOMS. Yeah. I, I felt fine after a few days. Annika messed me up, but I haven't run around a track in 10 yeah, plus just, years. Just so I had a, I've had some great discussions with Annika. Um, I think there's some business synergies that some of the things that we're building from a technology perspective for human performance can really help her with. She's a, a Team Canada track and field athlete. She's a pole vaulter. 
Um, and and uh, yeah, I mean, I didn't work out with her. We've just had a couple of conversations about how we can leverage human performance technologies to maybe help her podium in, in Paris in 2024. Um, but yeah, no, I could. I don't want to work out with her. No, I don't want to work out with Tim Kennedy either. I'd bite his ankles or something. He, he's and try a to... beast. He and his whole crew are a beast. I'll, I'll, I'll give him that, man. I, I give you a hard time. I give Canada a hard time. I love Canada. It's good. It's good. I, I think it's worth mentioning that every 11 November, yeah. which we in America refer to as Veterans Day, which let's be honest to about 95% of Americans is just another holiday off, yeah. is called Remembrance Day Correct. in Canada. Yep. And I actually head up to Ottawa, which again, I refer to as your Washington, D.C., where the War Memorial is, um, where your parliament is. Yep. It's, it's called the capital city of a G7 country, but thanks. There, there, there you go. I'm, I'm educating some people. Yeah. Not, not many people can name the, the capital of Canada, but <laughs> I, I've spent most of my November 11th yeah. in Ottawa since 2014, which is when we... When we met at a bar on Remembrance Day, which is kind of what you do. You, we collectively uh, really celebrate... Uh, our veterans and and i mean yes i'm a veteran but i mean like our veterans i mean like the generation of men and women that fought in world war one and world war two uh and the korean war um and that's really you know there is a yeah it's a statutory holiday uh but the country stops at 11 11 moment of silence and in ottawa right in the downtown core is the national war memorial there is a massive parade uh Probably 100,000 people attend uh, in non-COVID times anyway. Uh, and there's an awesome little pub right beside the National War Memorial. And f my friends, colleagues, peers, folks from my community kind of migrate and take over that pub. Uh, and it's sort of as soon as the 21 gun salute stops post-armistice and the, the laying of the wreaths start, so does the drinking. And it's a really great time to break bread with warriors. Uh, in the post-Afghan uh, sort of conflict, we pay a lot of respect very early on to our friends and colleagues that we lost in that war. Um, and it's a solemn day, but it's also a bit of a celebration. Um, and so we really celebrate our war dead because it affords us the ability to live in the society we live in. And it's awesome. Uh, and... and um, yeah, so we met at the bar on Remembrance Day in what, 2014? 2014. Mag Magic Mike came oh, hold up. On, to hold on, hold on, hold on. So Now, a mutual friend of ours who mutual doesn't friend. need to be named. Yeah, he's still serving. He's a good, I actually ran into him in an Easter egg hunt the other Love day. him. He's Love great. him, dude. Yeah, no, we, we like, and he was looking good. He's wearing aviators, slick back hair, and our, our daughters were searching for Easter eggs in the park, and, and I hadn't seen him in years. I, and I told, him, I told him I was coming down here to hang out with Sorelli, and he just shook his head, and he's like, oh, fuck, boys. Like, <laughs> and so, and, and to, to, to play true to the stereotype, his, his accent is, he's got is a, bad. He's, he's not French-Canadian, but he's got a good He's got, a, he's he's got the, the, the good he's accent. Good. But he, he convinced me when we were both serving together to come up to uh, Ottawa. So I booked flights. He's like, you got to wear your uniform. Yeah. And I'm, I, I kept pushing. On Remembrance Day, wear your uniform. I, I kept pushing back because that meant I would have to shave. And he, I mean, he, I caved to him. He's like, just wear your uniform. Trust me. 
because I'm freshly divorced. Of which none of us wear a uniform on Remembrance no, Day. No, I, I, I didn't even divorced. have a retirement ceremony. They're like, hey, let's do your retirement ceremony. I'm like, no, I'll be at a bar. Just bring my paperwork. And that's what we did. But yeah. So we met. You and I hit it off, I think, at the bar. We got along pretty well. And you were in uniform. I was in uniform. In the morning. I was. I and think we started drinking at what? Like 9 a.m.? Probably about 9 a.m. Yeah. Uh, I like, on that day, I kind of gravitate towards Guinness. I don't know why. But... Um, I think I took my kids home. I think they were at the ceremony with me. I took them home. I got out of uniform and I came back to the bar. Um, and again, it's probably 11, no, 11 o'clock is the ceremony time, but probably say one o'clock. Everyone's kind of feeling no pain by one o'clock. It's a really, a lot of bro hugs, a lot of high fives, a lot of like drop pint glasses. And um, it's a great, it's a, it's my, it, in a weird way, it's kind of one of my favorite days of the year. It's impacted me more recently as I've reflected more and gotten smarter about things. I find it more of an emotional day. Um, I had one of the most impactful Remembrance Days last year alone, and it was, it was really impactful. But the year we met... Um, oh, boy. Oh, five. Are we going to... Are we going to... Okay, we'll... we'll remember, I'll preface... I'll remember preface, my kids listening to this. So. I'll preface this by saying I won't let the truth get in the way of a good story. Leading up to that Remembrance Day, there had been a spate of stolen valor uh, social media posts. In Canada. And, and even that morning, there was a couple and, and of... And explain what stolen valor so is. So stolen valor is... Um, Basically people claiming medals that they never earned or, or, or combat in, that they never saw. Yeah, but we even saw like non-service... People that have never served wearing like full airborne regiment regalia and like maroon berets and like it honestly looked like you kind of assembled a costume um, to misrepresent military service for your own personal gain. I, I don't know what, going to Starbucks and have them buy you a coffee or thank you for your service or whatever. I, who knows what? Or just their own delusional sort of self aggrandization. Um, there had been a lot of that leading up to that Remembrance Day. And so here, Magic Mike, as he became known after this day, uh, shows up to the bar wearing Navy SEAL dress blues. Is that what you call them? Uh, they're Navy Nest dress blues. Dress, yeah. dress, dress blues. Navy dress blues. Um, and Americans, unlike in Canada, like you get a medal if you can do 20 push-ups. So like, <laughs> not quite my friend, but yes. we, we hold our honors and awards to a very high standard. Whereas, <laughs> you know, yeah, you can run a, you can run a mile in eight minutes. You get a medal, son. Um, and, and so Mike being fit, you know, has an astronomical amount of medals and ribbons and uh, is wearing on his uniform that, that I probably didn't earn. Uh, I don't know. I think you can do 20 push-ups. I think you earned it. As the day goes on, you know, the ties become looser, the shirts unbutton a little bit. Uh, the, the, the party ended up gravitating towards uh, one of our, we call them, le well, you probably call them legions. We, we call them, uh, I remember you guys are like, hey, we need to go to like the legion. And I'm, like, to the legion. and I'm like, in my mind, I'm thinking the American VFW. In the American Legion or whatever they're, they're, they're referred to, and I'm like, nobody ever goes there to drink. And they, I remember you convinced me. You're no, like, it's no, cheap, you want to go. Trust me, it's like it's cheap, the next part. Cheap, cheap beers, go to the Legion, and so we gravitated to the Legion. And I don't know. We're probably into the evening now. Everybody is very well lubricated. 
And there was a group of reserve soldiers who are great guys. I was a reserve soldier. The, the, the reserves and the militia structure in Canada is a really proud heritage. It's awesome. There's a lot of really great things. So when I say reserve soldiers, I don't mean that to sound too degrading. Yeah. But they're not Team 6 operators. Okay? And they, I think, in their sort of honoring the pride of the day, questioned the guy wearing the uniform that they didn't recognize as a stolen Valor uniform. So about four or five guys started playing pokey chest with old Magic Mike. And well, they, being like, hold on, hold on. I, I remember I was off by myself talking to a, a, a lady, yep. and we were talking to each other, and those four guys came over and, and... And started calling him out. How dare you wear that uniform in our, in our legion on this day? Stolen valor, motherfucker, you name it, pokey chest, 50 caliber finger, bang, bang, bang. And they looked at his Navy SEAL trident and started calling him out on it. And it just didn't compute. Like, Mike's brain wasn't computing. Like, what do you, what do you mean? What do you mean, like, I'm a, I'm a stolen valor guy. Like, this is a fucking Navy SEAL trident. And it escalated to the point where I think Mike might be the only person in the history of the SEAL teams to take his trident off his uniform and use it as a ninja star. And uh, threw, it, <laughs> threw it at this fucking guy. I just snorted. <laughs> before this all-out brawl kind of kicked off. Um, because we were trying to downplay it, but we weren't in uniform, so these guys didn't really know sort of our load station. We're like, guys, he's with us. He's good. And like, well, fuck you too. And you know what a bunch of guys fueled on booze on, on an emotionally charged day looks like. Anyway, Mike used his trident as a ninja star. Uh and, and won a pretty epic bar fight. I'll give you that. I'll give you that. Here's what I remember. One, we had been drinking since 9 a.m. Yeah. This time it's around 9 p.m. And I'm not a drinker. I, at this point, I was not a drinker. I, I, I'd been on a alcohol kick for like two years. Probably one of the, the best shape of my life. And when those four guys came, there was, there was a hallway that led to the grander room and then that led to the stairs. I remember that portion, that portion of the room became so crowded with people yeah. that it was a full-on brawl. It was a brawl. I couldn't even lift my hands because some guy had grabbed me and the other guy was punching me in the face. I remember threatening that guy's life. That yeah. Once my hands are free, I'm going to kill you. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, it, spilled. it went all the way down the stairs, all the way outside the Legion. It was a good one. Uh, Ottawa police yep. um, showed up. I, I remember I had... Which half of them are former unit members. So we, we always kind of err on the side. We always end up on the good side of that. But yeah. I remember I had like one row of ribbons left. Yep. And I, I took them off. And I, and, I, I threw them. I'm like, and you, no trident. You forgot these, you motherfuckers. And no trident. I think I said the words America. And uh, you did. Then the he, cops he came actually, and he actually said, "America, like if you couldn't, you can't make this shit up." The next morning, one of the other guys that was in our unit knew the guys that accosted Mike, and said, "Do you guys have any idea what you did?" And, and to their credit, uh, 
they returned your trident. They found it. They returned your trident with a, an apology letter. Uh, as typical, can, Canadians are really good at saying sorry. Um, and so with an apology letter, um, and, and I will leave the story there, but it's gone on to become a bit of an urban legend uh, between kind of gold squadron and one squadron. And, and uh, I'll just leave it there to, to respect the internal cultures of the way that we interact as squadron to squadron. I'll leave it there. Well, I remember you guys called and you're like, hey, we got your Trident back. Give us your address. We're going to send it. I, I did say I'm like pounded into your bar. You guys, we did not give the Trident back to you. We have the Trident. Yeah, you know, I, I, I said I pound it into the bar. Do whatever you want with it. I, it's, we have the Trident. And I'll leave, it, I'll leave the story at that. Yeah, it's... Um, but I've been back to Ottawa multiple times for Remembrance Day. Now that COVID is off, I, I intend to be back this November if Canada has not blocked me. No, no, you're good. And we have a really, we've, we've got some exciting projects on the go. And I think we're going to, uh, we're going to do a Remembrance Day skydive in Ottawa. So, let's, so to anyone listening and to all my Canadian brothers, again, I'm joking, any Americans, uh, what is the drop zone in Ottawa? November 10th, we'll, we'll orchestrate this. Come yeah, join. I mean, we're going to check for weather, but we've got, we've got support from the drop zone. It's called Parachute Ottawa, run by uh, Mobility Labs that is heavily aligned with CPS and the connections that we have on some, of the, other, some of the other projects we're working on the skydive front. Uh, I'll front the money for, for what we need to do to, run, to rent the plane. I'll pay for the whole thing. Um, we're going to rent a sky van. We're going to fill it with serving, non-serving members of our community. And our goal would be to do kind of like a sunset jump over the Ottawa river on remembrance day prior to going down for the ceremony, but we'll, we'll let weather sort of dictate. Uh, so 10th, 11th, Ottawa, uh, 10th, 11th, November, uh, we'll try and pull that off. Um, Hell yes. Yeah, man. We'll do it. It's, it it'll be really, it'll be great. And we'll have fun doing it. We'll, um, we'll, we will get Fred Williams. I'll get Nick Cush. I'll talk to Andy Stumpf. We'll, yep. we'll, we'll try to stack the deck with the team. Yeah. And I don't want to mention what we got right now. No, the team, the team on the, the project team. Yeah. Yeah. We'll bring the project team. I'd love to bring some of our, our uh, serving and veteran operators that want to participate. I know there's a few guys I've been talking to that are super into it. Um, and we'll just go and have a, a, a fun skydive uh, and then go downtown and honor the Remembrance Day traditions and, and uh, see where it goes. Hopefully, not, who knows hopefully we, not in jail. We, might, we may find the guys that accosted me. <laughs> we might find them. I think, and, we should, I, will. You know, I think we should invite them. So I know, I, know who you, I know your name. So you're invited. Please come and have a bro hug with Magic Mike and, 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 and toast a beer and, and hang out on Remembrance Day this year. It'll be I fun. will shake the, the hands 100%. of the guy who hit me while I was being held multiple 100%. times. 100%. Glenn, uh, these conversations, man, I love it, dude. You, you are a brother. Um, we've got so much more ahead of us, especially with this project. I'm we got, using we got, we've here. got an exciting project. Before we close this out, and we will, again, for those listening, uh, November 11th, we will be setting up a jump open to the public. Uh, of course, everyone has, well. Open to the number of people that can fit in a sky. Fit, yes. Uh, hopefully we can get like a C-130 or something. Nah, it no, it won't happen. Not going to happen. Well, no, no, there's private C-130s. Yeah. You never know. I'm not, I'm not going to fund that much. Yeah. Okay. Sure. We'll get a C one thirty. There we go. Thank we'll you. We're going for a sky van. Well, you got to think big. This is a guy who's got to go big. 
Let's go big. Okay. Let's go big. So we will we will get information out that at least at least a month or two months before it happens. Yeah, buddy. And again, I don't even know if I'm allowed in Canada, so you're gonna have to pull. You're good. Okay. I got you. All right. I've got a great relationship at the U.S. Embassy right now that you're going to be just fine. And send my best to Justin Trudeau. <laughs> we close this with an additional two questions. Oh, First one. Here we go. The 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 this, real question. Stump the chump. What makes you cry? Look, and and usually we we don't let our guests leave until. We see some tears. We, we really haven't had, shown You some. had me earlier. I just was okay at holding it back. Right. How are you going to measure whether you've lived a good life, an impactful life? Uh, that, that is the easiest. That is an easier answer than whether or not I'm going to put onions on my cheeseburger. Um, if my, I have three beautiful blonde girls in my life. And if they look at me and say, I'm proud of you, fucking mic drop, I'm out. Yeah. That's it. That's it. And, and, and I think two out of three are, I think I got two out of three right now. So let's, you know, we'll see where it goes. <laughs> but that's a good one, man. Yeah. That, that's a good one. Yeah. What are those one to three key tenants, those non-negotiables that you live your life by that, that have led to your success more or less? Uh, they've come about very recently. Can that can that work? That that no no that is actually like interesting. It's, it, it's been a, a relatively recent revelation, uh, and and I kind of knew you were going to ask this, so I thought about it a little bit. But then, as I thought about it, it, it came on very quickly. Um, think big, like think big, and then think big, and then think fucking bigger, and hundred x where you think you're going to go. And 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 you and I have had these discussions this week. And we've yeah. Did you you and, and for for the audience, you think big. I think even, big. Even my wife, we we all had dinner. It was the first time you guys met. She's like, you need to think like Glenn. And I'm like, I I'm just not at that level, dude. No, I think I think big. And touch wood, we're kind of making that happen. And it's really humbling to see that. Like, um, but think big. And then when you think you're big, go 10x what you think you're thinking. The second one is uh, just tell the truth, man. Lies are toxic, whether they're little white lies or big things like just tell the fucking truth in life. Um, and and, and kind of like leading with love, you can't go wrong. Uh, you'll never be wrong if you tell the truth. Hey, hold, hold on. In one thing, I've always said this. People have said, hey, well, how do you lead in the military? And I've, I've said, because maybe we've had this conversation is we lead through love. And I talk about accountability. Yeah. And like actually holding your kids accountable is the highest form of compassion that there is because you want them to become competent, good human beings that contribute to society, which means you have to teach them and hold them accountable. I think accountability, and I've failed on accountability so many times. Self-accountability uh, as yeah, well. Yeah, self-accountability, like, and, and it adds up. Like just, I've actually never, actually, I've actually not failed on accountability, to be honest with you. Never. Because, well, come on. No, I let's, usually, let's watch our words I've, here. I've been a pretty good at like taking responsibility for my actions. You're talking about self accountability. Good or bad. Okay. Good or bad. But there has been times, many times, where I've checked my own accountability and lacked integrity. What is it, what, what's the definition of integrity? Like doing what's right when no one's around? Something like that? Yes. Um, so I have not checked myself at times when I should have. Um, but telling the truth, even the truth to yourself, 
like looking yourself in the mirror and calling it as you see it. That's powerful. And it's, and it's hurtful. And it sucks. Or it can suck. Uh, but do it. It's fucking powerful. I think if you do any combination of two and three, you're good to go. No, no, there is a difference in business. What I've found different from the military is my intent is, hey, we're all going to do this together, but something changes along the line say, hey, guys, you're out. And so, but if you tell the truth in that, you're not fucking them. Even things if, change. Circumstances change. Hey, guys, this was my intent. Hey, that's mission analysis 101 from soft planning. Situation change. Is the mission change or is the, is, is, the, is the plan changed? Things change all the time. Telling people the truth doesn't mean they're going to like the truth. You don't have to make everything roses for people. But as long as you look someone in the eye and you tell them the truth, then you're okay. But I'm, I'm telling not, you to your face. But I'm telling you to your face. And I'm being open and direct and upfront about what's happening. And it gives you the opportunity then to at least give a counter. As opposed to where do you fuck someone? By going around, hitting them on the flank, being devious, whatever the case may be. If you look someone in the eye and you tell them the truth, I never said the message has to be roses, but it has to be honest. And if you're honest with people, you can't go wrong. Nate, I love your analogy of special operations planning. The situation changed. I intended for this, for all of us to move forward. Yep. But now... Situation changed. Yeah. And, And every time we do something, and this is, I mean... My organization went into Afghanistan, and, and we had a couple of casualties, but they weren't combat-related casualties. We never lost an operator, a supporter, or a specialist on a target. There's a million horseshoes shoved up our ass as to why that didn't happen. But we also planned with such precision and detail that, that we were able to, 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 to do that, and some of that was just... Because we were constantly reevaluating, has the situation changed? And hey, I, I thought I was going in on 20 guys. We're going in on a 200 guys. Are we going to abort? Fuck no. Situations change. Let's change the plan on the fly. Have everybody briefed up on it. Good. This is the truth. This is going to suck. This is going to hurt, but we're going to do it. Go. Everyone respects it. Everyone. Re- it's very hard to disrespect the truth. You don't have to like it, but it's very hard to disrespect the truth. That's, and, and this has taken me a lot of scars to learn that. Time is the greatest mentor uh, of all of us. The decision-making process between when I was 20 yeah. and now is so vastly different. And I'm not the same person I was six months ago, no, three no. months ago, no, two months ago, one month ago. Things change. Well, Glenn, dude, um, this has been great. It's been it's been fun. This is like this is like driving to brunch this morning. This is the conversations. Yeah, like, it's pretty fun. I, and I disagree with you on a lot. I, I, I mean, our our conversations get intense. <laughs> um, but no, I've always appreciated you as a business mentor. One because you've actually absolutely crushed it with with the defense fund one nine. We're getting in, there. in Canada. We're getting there. I mean, you've pulled in some players, dude. I have some great partners. I have some unbelievable capital partners. Uh, we've made some investments in some companies, both Canadian and American, that are crushing it. I mean, we just did a, one of our companies, a Salt Lake City company. I was actually talking to you about 
what they've been able to discover with an, uh, the most powerful algorithm that is going to be one of the more powerful national security tools going forward uh, as we counter a, Russia, uh, a rising China and Russia. Uh, they just, you know, we just did a 5x return on our investment. They just closed a $45 million financing and they are a rocket ship. Uh, and we're just happy to be along for the ride with some of, some of the U.S.'s most sophisticated investors. And I'll just, I mean, read the press release. It's all open source. But I'm just, I look at myself in the mirror and, and, and I find myself being invited into these deals. And I'm like, you do, you do know like I'm the redheaded stepchild from Canada, right? And they're like, yep, that's why we want you. Let's go. I'm like, all right, let's fucking go. Well, to, to seal a quote from a guy I highly respect, Dave Cooper. Um, which I know you know that name. Yep. Seal Master Chief. I'll leave it at that. He once said, it's amazing what we can do when we're a team. Canada, U.S., British, Australia, New Zealand, France. That's, that's, it doesn't matter. I'll just, I'll just plug, if you give me two minutes, uh, the venture capital industry that I'm involved in. Uh, I'm one of one in Canada. I'm working with some of the best venture capitalists and investors in the U.S. Uh, and it is a team sport. And our collective national security is a team sport. The, the, the model of an investment coming together replicates a CJ SOTIF, which for listeners is a combined joint special operations task force. Venture capital and special operations are, are identical, men in terms of how you deploy resources in high-risk, high-reward environments. It's identical. And, and I'm super humble and grateful to be investing and partnering with some really heavy hitters that are doing some really cool stuff and companies that are just blowing my mind. I mean, it's just a bunch of really smart people thinking shit up and then they need a knuckle dragger like me to kind of help guide them in, in areas that they don't need. And it's really humbling. I'm just, I wake up every morning like on fire and passionate about what we're building. There's a need and I know I, I thank you personally for what you're doing as well as those venture capitalists, but Glenn Cowan, folks, will drop all his information. And for Thanks, all of brother. you, thank you for joining the Men's Journal Everyday Warrior podcast. We'll be back. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Men's Journal Everyday Warrior podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show and pick up a new issue of Men's Journal magazine. Men's Journal magazine has features on health and fitness, adventure and travel, style, and my favorite, the coolest gear hitting the market today. Until next time, I'm Mike Sorelli, and thanks for listening.